Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. We got an awesome one for you today. This one might take some of your brain power, I gotta admit. But then again, if Smart People Podcast doesn't take your brain power... We're doing something wrong. Oh my gosh, those were the words I was thinking. I'm psychic. It's crazy. How many decisions do you think you make in a day about anything? Actually, don't even answer the question. It's... It's not even fair. It's not even worth thinking about because then you would have to make some type of decision. Anyways, the point of that is we're going to talk to you a little bit more today about decision making, how it rules a lot of aspects of your life, even when you don't realize it. Most decisions are subconscious and uh, it's pretty good stuff. I mean, I was really, really excited to talk to Venkatesh today and learn more about how our brains work. But before that, do me a favor, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, click the Amazon banner, shop for your daily shopping stuff, or if you're in the market for a new TV, go ahead, splurge, buy one. Make sure you do it through our banner, though. It gives us a little kickback. It keeps the lights on, helps us out a ton, and we truly, truly do appreciate it. We do. And if you're heading on over to iTunes, give us a rating, you know, five stars only, and uh, let us know what you think. Shoot us a comment, sign up for the newsletter. Really just looking to talk to you guys and hear what you have to say. Actually, speaking of hearing what you have to say, this week's guest was a listener request. Another amazing listener request. I think this week, every interview we booked... And we did a lot. 
were listener suggestions. And they were great. So, I mean, we'll reach out, guys, if if they're worth it. You know, probably not going to talk to your grandmother unless she's the Queen of England or something. I don't know. So this week we speak with Venkatesh Rao. He is an author, primarily a blogger, but he has one great book out called Tempo. And he does a lot of work on decision-making, uh, the brain, how we come up with these different things. Wait till you dive into the conversation we have with them. You'll learn everything from how to market your product or service better, how to run a better meeting at your business, and how to lift a bull over your head. Honestly, that's the one thing that I hope to take away from this. You want to learn how to lift a bull over your head? I absolutely want to learn how to lift a bull over my head. You'd be a huge dude. That or a small bull. <laughs> Anyways, he writes for Forbes. He writes at his blog, which is ribbonfarm.com. He's done he's written at The Economist, New York Times, has a PhD from University of Michigan, and he did his postdoc at Cornell. Really smart guy. He's got a new book coming out that you guys might want to check out. But just listen in to what he says and uh, you can tell us afterwards what you think. Here we go with Venkatesh, also known as Venkat Rao. All right, Venkat, thank you for being on the show. I really wanted to talk to you a lot about the decision-making process. I know that you've done a lot of work. Your book, Tempo, was was very much revolving around decision-making. And I don't think I realized how much decision-making plays a role in our everyday lives. So I was hoping you could kind of explain what brought you to want to learn about how we make decisions. So I came to it kind of in a roundabout way, actually. So my uh, academic background is in a field called control theory. So this is the engineering discipline which studies things like the thermostat in your home or the cruise control in your car, right? So the mechanisms where you've got a little feedback loop where you've got a sensor that's measuring something like the speed of your car and it then uh, takes a decision based on that simple variable. So if you're going too fast, it automatically presses the brake. If you're going too slow, it presses the accelerator, right? So that's a simple feedback loop. So control theory is the study of such loops. And that's kind of like almost uh, the quark of decision-making, if you think about it. It's like the simplest possible decision you could be making continuously. You're measuring one thing, you're deciding what to do about it, and you're taking actions. And um, so that was my graduate work and uh, my PhD and postdoc, but obviously you can sort of get arbitrarily complex. And uh, by the time I was doing my PhD and postdoc, I was uh, heavily into really popular research topics at the time, which was uh, command and control systems for the military on battlefields with like large numbers of uh, robotic aircraft, uh, human beings, and like what are called mixed initiative systems, where humans are t- making decisions and machines are making decisions, and all of it is kind of interleaved. And uh, I was doing work on this along with a lot of my colleagues, and I got increasingly interested in human decision making because technology is kind of like a mirror, right? Uh, whenever you try to design a robot to make decisions, you kind of instinct- instinctively think about what you would do as a human to make those decisions. Like if you want to have a robot find its own way across a piece of terrain using a map, you kind of instinctively think, all right, how do I use a map, right? And most uh, engineering around decision-making begins that way with like human instincts and a human reference point. But the interesting thing that happens when you study and build engineering systems is that it kind of comes back and bites you because the more you do that, the more you realize that 
how you thought you thought is not really how you think. So that's a convoluted <laughs> statement, but you get what I'm saying, right? Right. Like um, if you think hard enough about how you drive, how do you make a decision of where to turn, the subtleties start to come out. And so through that roundabout way, I got interested in how humans make decisions. And this book was kind of my first attempt at synthesizing what I'd learned from artificial intelligence, cognitive psych, all the usual suspect disciplines, and sort of come up with an account of human decision making, like a one plausible account of how at least some types of humans make decisions. And uh, since then, I've kind of changed my mind on how some pieces of it work, but that was how I got there, basically. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the more research you do, you're going to come up with a few different ideas and theories and mm -hmm. whatnot. But I kind of want to get back to what you said. I've never thought about how it's hard to explain. I've never thought about how we make decisions because it's the only way we know how to do so, you know? Mm -hmm. And so have you found that there are ways to make robots or whatever it might be make decisions better than the way we do like has that taught you anything about how you could actually make decisions better yeah it's i'm trying to think of a good example to pick out here but uh, yeah one of the interesting things that i think a lot of people discovered this lesson in multiple ways but i discovered it through trying to think about how machines make decisions Humans in general are very uncomfortable making decisions when they don't have a model of the decision. That's a convoluted way of saying that they're not happy with instinctive decisions in many domains. But it's like if your uh, muscle memory or your foot knows how to do something and you kind of automatically do it, you're kind of not happy until you understand it. Uh, sometimes we kind of interfere in those decision-making processes and find out the hard way that the way we were doing it subconsciously was in fact the best way, right? So uh, let me try and give you an example. Like when you're trying to catch a ball that's thrown at you, for example, you don't need to know physics and calculus to throw, mm. uh, throw or catch a ball, right? And if you do a lot of research and people have done this kind of research, uh, you find a very simple heuristic. The way people catch a ball is to run in a way where the ball is always at a constant angle between you and the horizon. So you, you might, for example, keep it at 45 degrees. And if you do that long enough, when the ball lands, you'll catch it, right? Huh. But it took some research to figure out that this is how humans make the decision. But if you don't know how a human makes that decision, you might get like you might make up your own complicated theories about how balls move and how you should catch balls and you might try to overthink it and that'll actually lead to things getting worse rather than better. So that's um, one thing you learn when you try and really think about teaching robots to make decisions. Now that's really interesting. I'm kind of picturing myself catching a ball and I was thinking, I wonder how that works. But so <laughs> getting back to tempo and how that was your attempt at kind of one of the ways that we make decisions, could you just kind of explain for those that aren't familiar, obviously tempo has the connotation of what you're going to talk about, but what is the main uh, idea behind your book? Okay, so the main idea, uh, most people when they're introduced to the formal study of decision-making, they kind of think in terms of like uh, single decisions, like which college should I attend or which house should I buy or is this like a good bargain or a bad bargain? So they think of decision-making as like almost individual instances of problem solving where somebody hands you like the data that um, is relevant to a decision. You think about it, you make a decision and you move on. It's kind of a very static view of decision making and most people when you ask them what do you uh, what do you understand by the term decision making that's the kind of image that'll 
get conjured up in their head. But if you look at how you actually live life, it's much more dynamic than that. Like, um, I prefer not to use decisions like, you know, picking college as the uh, prototypical decisions to study. I prefer something like driving. And this is kind of a really continuous real-time decision-making process where if you actually sit and count like some people have done, you realize that you're making something like 1,400 decisions a minute. And this is in a continuous stream. And it's happening in a multiple-layered kind of way where input is streaming through your eyes and ears and your subconscious brain functions are and muscle memory are kind of dealing with 80% of it in uh, sort of triage. Sometimes you kind of spot an exception that bubbles up into conscious awareness, like, you know, uh, an old lady's crossing the street and suddenly you slam the brakes, right? How does that happen? It's like out of that smoothly flowing stream, which is mostly subconscious, one event comes up and interrupts your attention. So this is, if you actually think about how, what kinds of decisions humans make, this kind of continuous stream decision-making is actually 99% of it. Whereas the kind of pen and paper, write down the data process, and then come to a conclusion, that type of decision is like actually extremely rare. So for me, the idea for the book was, let's actually focus on the kind of decision-making that constitutes the bulk of the decisions we actually make, which is the continuous and stream type. And the more I thought about that, I realized the more the quality and sort of texture of the decision-making is really more like music or improv jamming and jazz. It's like you're aware of the rhythms going on, you're aware of your emotions, you're aware of your energy levels, and you control those kind of high-level variables, rhythms, energy, emotions, and using that, you kind of modulate your lower-level decision-making, right? That's really how a lot of decision-making happens. So when you're really upset and you're driving, you might drive more aggressively, whereas if you're feeling calm and collected, you might drive more safely. So that was the kind of uh, approach I wanted to take. So the entire book is about uh, approaching decision-making through this uh, idea of rhythms, energy, and emotion. That's really fascinating because I was thinking about when I'm making decisions during the day that I... I'm consciously making, like you said, the pen to paper or whatever it might be. Am I exerting more energy than when I'm doing those other decisions that I might not be aware of? Because, for example, today I spent a lot of time trying to, I was being creative and trying to come up with things out of thin air and I felt exhausted afterwards. And I'm just wondering if all that, is that a constant conscious decision making process and is it more tiring? Yeah, that that's actually one of the, I think, pathologies of decision-making as it has been taught to us by, well, a certain body of uh, knowledge. Like, uh, I primarily blame economics, actually. Like, um, <laughs> the economic study of decision-making where they think of, you know, the rational human being and they think of, like, prototypical choices like uh, buying, uh, making an economic decision like buying or selling something. And they use, like, frameworks like game theory for that. It's like, you start with a completely clean sheet, you dump some data there, and then you come analyze and come to a conclusion. That's a very exhausting process. Whereas if you approach it in a more naturalistic way, you realize that how you really make these conscious um, decisions is uh, you maintain situation awareness, for example. Uh, so you're constantly processing a stream of information so that your mental models of the world are appropriate and accurate into the moment, right? So uh, take a decision like you're hosting a party and how do you keep the party going, right? You don't sit down and say that I'm gonna hand out everybody name badges and uh, at uh, five minutes after I start, I'm gonna like clink on the champagne glass and make an announcement. You don't actually think and plan in that way. <laughs> you sort of 
walk into the party, get yourself a drink, get lubricated a little bit socially, <laughs> circulate, get your energy levels up, you get your uh, emotions up in the right place. And then you kind of observe and watch what's going on and start by like, you know, making little interventions. Like maybe that group and cluster over there is kind of feeling uncomfortable. So you go and make them feel at home. You kind of introduce people to each other. And as you kind of get into the flow of the party, you get more and more comfortable making decisions about it. So when you do it that way, where you kind of develop the background of a decision enough, the foreground processes become very easy. So the higher the situation awareness, the more you are in tune with the flows around you, the more you're aware of the rhythms around you, for example, in an office, the less pen and paper processing you have, you have to do to make enlightened decisions. And in sort of the idealized best case, if you're kind of like an absolute flow, like, you know, some sort of Zen mastery, you could sort of think of this um, mystical state almost where you don't have to do any heavy duty pen and paper processing and the right actions and decisions just sort of naturally pop into your awareness when you need them. Right. I definitely understand that. I, now that we're talking about this, I need to know the answer. How do we get there? How do we, how do we get there and how do we stay there? I mean, have you come across things that I could do or others could do in work, whatever it might be, to keep you in that process of flow or uh, easier decision making that energizes you rather than depletes you of that? So uh, there's two levels of answers to that question. The first is at the individual level, which is uh, relatively easy. So there's a lot of uh, work by a researcher, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Mm -hmm. It's a complicated Polish name. He wrote the famous book, Flow, I think, 1970s, Flow and Finding Flow. And he kind of came up with the basic answer there, where <clears throat> his basic proposition was that to get into this flow state, you kind of have to be engaged in tasks that are just slightly beyond the reach of your completely practiced skills at that point. And if you do that, you'll, you're most likely to get into flow. Whereas if you reach out for something that's a little too far beyond your current skill level, you'll get frustrated because it's too difficult. Whereas if you reach for something that's too simple, you'll get bored. So there's that optimal sweet spot that's just a little bit more difficult than what you're used to. So this is kind of like uh, weight training for your body, right? Uh, how do you build muscle? You progressively load your muscles with a little bit more than they can actually hold and your muscles grow as a result. So decision-making is like exercising and strengthening a muscle in that sense where you're constantly uh, exercising to failure and pushing a little bit beyond. So that grows your muscle and you're trying to vary your routine so that your muscles kind of get confused and you, they don't get locked into one kind of mode. So that's kind of the individual level answer. And um, that's what this 10,000 hours of practice and things like that are about, where how do you actually constantly load yourself at the right level? So that's well studied. There's a lot of good books and advice about that kind of stuff. At the organizational level, it's much harder because if you're trying to get like a large company or even like a small team of 10 people to work effectively together in that kind of orchestrated flow, then you kind of have to really work at building the processes um, in an enlightened way. And one of the few domains in which this has been done relatively well is software engineering, where I don't know how familiar you are, you guys are with uh, software engineering, but there's been a big uh, shift in the last couple of decades from something called waterfall planning to agile planning. So waterfall planning was where you made up big software systems by going through like 
months and months of detailed planning and documentation and specification writing, whereas the agile approach to software development is more about getting into the right rhythm and biting off small pieces at a time and kind of getting the whole team to gel with the right chemistry and kind of then making it almost a, a jazz improv session rather than composer composing a symphony and then an orchestra playing it. So does that make sense? Does that answer your question? It does. And I'm definitely familiar with, um, you know, the book Flow is so amazing and I mm-hmm. see how it kind of ties in. I never thought of it on a decision-making platform form, if you will. One of the things that I read in your book is you said work is simply whatever we must do to get from one decision to the next. And, mm-hmm. and I, that changed the way I thought about what I do on a daily basis. I mean, it is, okay, do I do this or that? And then you choose this. And then now there's another set of decisions to just get to the next spot. And yep. defining it as a decision-making process is something I never considered. And this is a relatively new way of thinking about this, and I didn't invent it, but it's sort of emerged in the zeitgeist over the last 20 or 30 years. And the reason it's happened that way is that people have gradually recognized in like a variety of academic disciplines as well as practical domains that work is really about transforming information and decisions are about acting on information. So you cannot make decisions if there's no new information. So uh, that's why you have so many like pointless meetings in <laughs> a really old school industrial organizations where there's like a weekly communication meeting. Everybody shows up and talks about the same old things, talks around in circles, nothing new happens. That's because they don't have this sort of um, process discipline of uh, keeping track of what's new. So unless there's new stuff to think about, chances are you won't actually reach any new conclusions. So it's like information is what drives processes forward. And each time you develop a new set of information, certain decisions are forced, certain options are opened up, certain options are closed off. So that's why as information is generated, decisions are automatically triggered. And work, especially information work, really is about jumping from information set to information set. And you can think about it as you do some work and you stop and, or or rather you take decisions whenever there's enough new information that uh, there's too many options that have sprouted up or closed down, right? So it's it's almost the rate of information flow that drives the rate of decision-making. So I come from the consulting world and you just brought up, you know, status meetings and that pretty much is the bane of my existence because (laughs) like you said, you're beating a dead horse. You're talking about things that either haven't happened or you want to happen. And, you know, there's no new information available to really drive the meeting. Mm -hmm. What do you think that organizations and businesses can do to avoid those types of stale meetings? I mean, I know on some level you do have to have those status meetings to check in and, and that kind of stuff. But how can companies make these types of meetings more productive even if it's just like changing the schedule to only come up when needs to come up. So that's, you're kind of asking like a, I don't know, an hour's worth of questions right there. <laughs> that's so what I'll we just do. sort of cherry pick a couple of themes in what you said that I want to respond to. Sure. So yeah, my main source of income is also consulting. So I'm completely familiar with what you're talking about. And also when I used to work at a paycheck job, it was kind of the other side. So there's a, there's a couple of things I want to, Uh, sort of uh, point out. One is productivity is a kind of bad measure because if you think in terms of productivity, you will kind of reach the conclusion that meetings are an unproductive waste of time and you'll abandon them and so (laughs) forth. So that's kind of the wrong measure. 
productivity. It kind of makes sense if you're like um, in a well-defined job where you kind of want to just go and do your thing. This is what Paul Graham, the investor, calls uh, maker time. So maker time versus manager time. But it's not the only standard. A lot of um, meetings, even if they convey no new information and no new perspectives, and simply reinforce existing um, ideas, that's important too. That's like mm -hmm. a steady drumbeat. Yeah. And the larger the group you're trying to coordinate, the more such drumbeat meetings really start to matter. But yeah, so that's one point I want to make, a caution against productivity as the sole measure. You have to ask, all right, am I doing other things like reinforcing certain ideas? Am I reinforcing a drumbeat of discipline? So those things are things to keep in mind. Uh, but always, of course, you have to keep an eye on um, is it actually doing what it's supposed to? If you're trying to create this drumbeat reinforcement of, say, core values every month and people's eyes are glazing over, you might be doing something wrong. Uh, so that's one piece of it. The other piece of it is, yes, whenever there's new information to process, certainly meetings should be designed to process the new information, either on an exceptional basis or on a routine basis. That's one of the functions of meetings, to process new information with all the stakeholders. But another, when new information is not available, is uh, finding new perspectives. And this means taking just your old set of information and sort of refactoring it as software people like to say, or changing your mental models about it, um, you know, uh, looking at it from a different angle. So these things may not necessarily generate new information, but they may shed new light on what you already know. And by doing that, they can sort of break individuals and groups out of um, ruts. They can get them unstuck. So if you put all these together, one sort of rule of thumb I would recommend to people who are involved in such processes is, is to identify the purpose of a meeting in every instance. So I don't. So if you have a regular standing meeting that's every day or every week, it is not sufficient to say, all right, this is our daily meeting to do a status check. That's kind of just a placeholder. Before an individual meeting starts, you have to ask, what am I actually trying to do here? I mean something very specific by that. I mean something like, what kind of information processing are we doing? Are we reinforcing existing concepts? Are we just generating a drumbeat to keep everybody synchronized? Are we processing new information? Are we stuck and are we trying to look at old information from a new angle to get unstuck, right? So it's important to identify the informational purpose of a status meeting in every instance, because obviously you can't do this like in one shot when you set up the calendar invite for like 50 repeats of a meeting, you obviously <laughs> cannot determine the informational purpose of all 50 of the meetings at once. So you have to kind of just decide like 15 minutes before the meeting starts, all right, what's the latest situation here, the situation awareness, what new information is in the picture? So what is it that we're trying to do in this meeting? So keeping your eye on that ball, I think helps not waste people's time. And John got to ask his question about consulting. So I want to kind of ask a question or two about marketing, which is what I'm interested in and do a little bit about. I'd imagine there's a pretty direct correlation between marketing and decision making because we're trying to get people to make certain decisions about our product or service. What kind of discoveries have you made especially while studying psychology and behavior about how our decision-making process is affected on a daily basis or long-term basis by the marketing that we are besieged with these days? 
So, you guys like to ask like thesis level questions another, on one go <laughs> Another hour long question. I mean, look, we know we only yes. have you for 30 minutes, so it's like, let's try and get all of the big questions. Yeah, so uh, again, since it's such a huge topic, I'll have to cherry pick a little bit. So yeah, I didn't actually talk much about uh, marketing related things in the book since I kind of wanted to keep it more at a conceptual and um, personally practical level. But uh, I have actually talked about sort of the marketing application of the ideas in Tempo a couple of times uh, at talks, and uh, I kind of work that into client engagements when I can myself. And a couple of ideas really jump out as useful from this uh, whole model of decision-making. One is uh, the idea of mental models is very useful when understanding positioning. So by positioning, I mean in the marketing sense, um, as uh, uh, described in classics like um, Al Rees' book on positioning, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with, right? right. So what is positioning? In that book, Rees uh, describes positioning as, all right, uh, there's a hole in your prospect's head where you have to position a product. So when Avis made its famous positioning campaign of VR number two, they kind of fit themselves into a mental model of car rentals and herds being number one, and they position themselves relative to that. And Reese calls that fitting a product or a message into a crenou. That's a French word. I'm not sure I pronounced it right, but that's positioning as a marketing person understands it. But that's a completely general idea. Whenever you're trying to introduce a new idea to a person who's not familiar with it, you kind of have to ask, what is the nearest and most appropriate mental model that the person has that he will bring to bear or she will bring to bear when I face them with this new information, right? And as a marketer, I believe your goal should be to minimize that distance as much as possible because the more familiar it, it is, the more easily the person can look at what they're saying and sort of fit it neatly into one of their mental models, the quicker they can get started processing. Now, of course, you don't want to do this to an extent where they look at it and it's so familiar, it's boring. So you do want to like work in an angle of stimulation and so forth and surprise, but you don't want to like present people with ideas that are so far removed from the most appropriate mental model they can conjure up that they basically have no idea how to respond to it. And um, I wrote an article about this on my blog, which I call the Milo Criterion. And um, this is the f there's a fable, a Greek fable about a wrestler named Milo who became strong and famous uh, through a training regimen his father imposed on him where when he was a young boy, his father made him lift a calf over his head. And every day he made him repeat that and the calf grew up and the boy grew up. And by the time the boy was like a young man of 18, he could lift a full grown steer over his head. So that's kind of... Um, I really like that. <laughs> and it, Yeah, it's an interesting metaphor for how you introduce people to new ideas in terms of marketing messaging. You kind of like start from where they are and ask... It's it's actually the flow idea applied to persuasion, where just as flow is about challenging yourself with a task that's just outside your reach, marketing is about challenging a prospect with a message that's just outside their ability to process, right? So you kind of gradually carry them along. So this is one of the applied ideas. I didn't make up this idea, obviously. The positioning people have been really thinking about this sort of thing for decades, but it's something that fits neatly into the tempo worldview. And other things also fit in um, quite nicely. Like uh, a lot of my thinking about human decision-making revolves around uh, archetypes and narratives. So, you know, like these little 
cartoon models of ourselves and other people that we make up. Like, you know, in high school, the archetypes might be jocks and nerds and band geeks and so forth. So those are archetypes. And then we tell ourselves little stories about these archetypes um, that go through life. And these are very useful for all sorts of decision-making, like whether you're talking about command and control in a military battlefield or you're talking about marketing. Archetypes and narratives are fundamentally how we think about ourselves and uh, the people around us and the stories that play out. So that's, again, kind of a useful fundamental discipline to bring to marketing thinking, thinking in terms of archetypes and narratives. I promise this question will not be as grandiose and require a long answer. But, you know, we've mentioned your book, Tempo, and I read that you are currently working on another book titled Game of Pickaxes. Is that correct? Yes, Game of Pickaxes. Can you tell our listeners a little bit what you're writing about in this book? So this one is basically a theory of uh, creative destruction at the macroeconomic level. So I've kind of zoomed out uh, compared to Tempo, which was about individual decision making. This is almost like uh, civilizational scale grand narratives. So um, you're familiar with Schumpeter's idea of creative destruction in the economy and how innovation happens. So I kind of want to approach that and look at the history of American technological innovation and progress um, between about 1800 to today and sort of use that as sort of a story from which to infer a sort of model and theory of innovation and uh, economic progress. And the reason for the title being Game of Pickaxes is that my starting point is uh, the little joke about when there's a gold rush on, you should be selling pickaxes to the miners, not mining for gold yourself. And to me, that's kind of the right motive for understanding pretty much the DNA of innovation. Like the whole story of technological progress in the last 300 years has been sort of smart people selling pickaxes to miners. And it kind of creates this interesting boom-bust process through which progress happens. That sounds really interesting. That's actually the second time that I've heard that statement in like the last week where you should be selling pickaxes to miners in a gold rush. That's awesome. It's like it is it's a it's such a good metaphor. And even we talked to somebody about it and they equated that to social media. And they were saying, you know, everybody who thinks you're making money off of social media, it's the people who, you know, it's the Twitters and the Facebooks that are making the money. It's not the guy, you know. And And there's like a very simple logic to why that happens, right? I mean, whether the gold rush is real or illusory and whether a particular miner actually strikes gold or not, or whether a claim pans out or not, they all need pickaxes, <laughs> right? So it's kind of a heads I win, tails you lose situation. Yeah. And it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. So even if the gold rush doesn't work out, some people are going to get rich off it. <laughs> and it's a cool name. Game of pickaxes is just a cool name in itself. So, well, I know we've, we've taken up about all the time that we had allotted for you, and we really appreciate you being on the show as we mentioned, you know, tempo is great. I'll keep an eye out for this next book, but also wanted to let our listeners know you are an active writer. And so where can they go and keep up with what you're what you're saying and what you're teaching us about? Yeah, actually, most of my writing is on my blog. Uh, books I kind of see as a sideline. I'm more of a blogger than a book writer. So my main blog is ribbonfarm.com. So that's R-I-B-B-O-N-F-A-R-M. So ribbonfarm, one word, dot com. And it's kind of an, I don't know how to describe it. It's uh, an eclectic blog. It's mostly long form, usually like three or 4,000 word pieces. So I post about once a week. 
that's kind of where you can find me most of the time. Oh, I also yeah, occasionally contribute to Forbes and other outlets. Yeah, I saw some of the Forbes articles. Really interesting stuff. I, I love, you know, you cover a wide array of topics and you, you dive down into a way that makes me feel like I'm, I'm definitely learning something that was previously above my head. So I appreciate that. Again, thanks for being on the show and uh, we'll keep an eye out for the next book. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good night. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Those of you who have not turned off the podcast, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I hope you head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Let us know what you think about everything. Yeah, Let shoot us, us an email, tweet, send us a Facebook message. doesn't matter how it gets to us. We're actually going to talk to a, a listener sometime later this week, I think it is, and give him some pointers on starting his own podcast. That's the kind of stuff we want to do. So really appreciate you listening in. And make sure to tune in next week. We keep lining up amazing episodes. It's fun times. Learning something along the way. It's better than just turning on the radio and listening to Taylor Swift, Trouble, even though that's a fantastic song. I, I sorry. Okay. Anyway, keep those suggestions coming. We truly do appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. See you next week. Later. Gator. Gator.